We're privileged to have a contribution from one of the great creative talents of our time, Lin-Manuel Miranda. May his beautiful words be an inspiration to us. We should never take our rights and liberties for granted, and we must remain committed to finding a way forward together. That's what I wrote about in the song Dear Theodosia from Hamilton. I believe no challenge is worth abandoning our efforts to unite as Americans. We'll keep working generation after generation until we reach that someday. Hello, American prestige heads, and welcome to your first American prestige of the new year. Happy New Year, everybody. I already see Derek wincing from my uh, my energy. He's, I, I, he's currently uh, falling out of his chair. completely blank. I have no, fake news. This is fake that news. Is and we might and actually, I hope I don't, I, I, I don't tease this as then it never happens, but we might actually start uh, doing a little bit of video content soon. So you'll be able to yeah, see our beautiful faces, uh, only, the, only the hottest part of the, the third party interviews, not, not <laughs> a, just the two of us. Yeah, our our faces will be the baseball crank, but with like an, uh, an anti-imperialist thing put on it. Um, but yeah, so we might actually have video content soon. So um, everyone, thanks again for listening. Uh, and let's get into the news because there there is actually a lot going on this week. And um, probably yeah, the thing I, that I has been... I feel like we should start. I know we're dedicating this entire episode to the, the January 6th Capitol riot. Oh, but, yes, it's uh, January 6th, of course. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, but uh, I should point, I should note that uh, I've just seen this. Uh, the Oregon uh, Secretary of State has ruled that uh, former New York Times columnist Nick Kristoff, the savior of uh, downtrodden peoples all across the world, is not qualified to run for governor of Oregon. I guess he didn't meet the residency requirements. So wait, wait. So Kristoff the... isn't running? <laughs> Apparently not. I mean, he'll probably. He didn't appeal, even I tell guess. his foreign policy. He didn't even tell us. That's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm going to shoot the the group text to chat right now, uh, and and he could tell um, us what's going I mean, on. That is appeal, absolutely ridiculous. Who knows? That is so offensive. Oh my God! Well, Nick, uh, we will we will continue to fight the good fight, regardless of whether the the deep state is trying to keep you down. Um, so let's get into the news. And I think what what has really been sweeping the foreign policy world this week is uh, what's going on in Kazakhstan. Um, so of course, people probably only know this country through Borat. But Derek, maybe you could tell us a little bit what's been going on and and why it's important in terms of the larger regional dynamics. Yeah, so um, this started uh, while I was still happily uh, ensconced in my holiday vacation. But uh, over the weekend, uh, protests broke out uh, in the city of, I'm going to try to do this properly. Uh, hold on. Uh, Zhanuzhen, uh, or Zhanu, yeah, I guess that's Zhen. Okay. Zhanuzhen. Uh, uh, sorry, I'm trying, trying to bully my way through this. In Western Kazakhstan, over uh, the Kazakh government's 
decision to lift uh, price caps on, I think, uh, liquefied petroleum gas, which is a you know obviously a type of fuel uh, that means higher prices uh, at the pump for consumers, uh, and people didn't want to pay higher prices at the pump, uh, so a protest broke out uh, in this western city, which happens to be um, on or near a major. Kazakh oil well, so you know the connection is sort of obvious there. Uh, those protests spread very quickly uh, across the country, uh, including uh, and most importantly to its largest city, Almaty. Uh, and by I think Tuesday, we were seeing significant demonstrations. Kazakhstan is facing its biggest political crisis since it split from the Soviet Union. What began as protests over the price of fuel has grown into a nationwide uprising. Thousands of people uh, marching in Almaty uh, over ostensibly the the fuel price increase. Uh, there are a lot of deeply, more deeply rooted grievances in Kazakhstan over things like corruption, over um, you know massive inequality, the complaints over. Uh, the sharing or the distribution of of the country's quite substantial, really national uh, natural resource revenues. Um, so you know the protests, I think, fairly fairly quickly turned from something about this one specific incident to uh, an expression of the, of the more uh, overall grievance. Um, the protests. Once they hit Almaty, really turned, uh, at some point they turned violent. It's unclear what exactly happened to cause that. But uh, uh, yesterday in particular, we're recording this on Thursday. So when I say yesterday, I'm talking about Wednesday. Uh, there were reports of uh, public buildings being set on fire, the presidential palace in Almaty, the uh, city hall, um, other other kind of uh, major buildings. Uh, there were reports at the airport that the protesters had seized control of the city's airport. Um, and, uh, you know, some, the, we were starting to see some reports of backlash or, you know, response, uh, from Kazakh security forces. So what does this, what does this mean in terms of the larger regional dynamics? Is this going to be something that could be confined to Kazakhstan or is this something that is going to be, um, have larger regional implications? Well, so I think um, based on what I've seen today, um, we may be at an end of, of of this, at least this round of protests. It may, you know, things may spark back up again. But uh, Kazakh security forces seem to have responded uh, fairly um, energetically, let's say. Uh, there are reports of uh, dozens of protesters dead. Um, there's no specific uh, figure on that, but uh, there are reports of I think between somewhere between twelve and eighteen uh, police officers also killed in in violent clashes. Uh, the Kazakh Kazakhstan's president uh, Kasim Jomar Tokayev uh, invoked his uh, Kazakhstan's membership in the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which is a sort of NATO esque uh, you know security alliance. 
alliance, including Russia, Armenia, uh, a couple of other countries in that region. Uh, and C- the CSTO agreed to send peacekeepers uh, to Kazakhstan, uh, Russian. It's not clear if there are going to be any other, um, you know, Armenia or any other uh, forces, but Russian forces deployed to, to Kazakhstan uh, on Thursday. Uh, I don't know that they've been deployed out into the, the streets or anything like that yet, but they are there. Um, it sounds like uh, security forces are back in control of those, uh, like I said, the public buildings that were uh, attacked on Wednesday. It sounds like they're back in control of those buildings. They've taken control of uh, the main city square in Almaty. So it sounds like um, they've got a pretty good handle and pretty solid handle on things at this point. So I, I wouldn't expect it to spill out um, in, into anything bigger. There are certainly regional implications. Uh, Kazakhstan is a major um, energy provider. It's a major Russian ally. Uh, it's a, got strong ties with China. Um, so, you know, there, there are um, regional issues to consider. Uh, there are also issues sort of uh, within Kazakhstan. Uh, Tokayev has, uh, I would say, availed himself a little bit of this opportunity to purge uh, the security establishment of some of the remnants of the previous president, Nursultan Nazarbayev, who still looms very large over the country's politics. He's sort of the father of Kazakhstan in a sense, in, in an official sense. Um, he, he removed Nazarbayev himself, who was chair of the state security council. Uh, he's removed uh, uh, at least one major Nazarbayev ally from an important security post. So he's actually, uh, Tokayev actually seems to be consolidating uh, to some degree his control over the state. Um, but that's, I think, where things stand now. So we'll see we'll see where they go. And this leads almost directly when we're talking about the region into the next topic we wanted to discuss, which were next week's series of meetings that's going to happen between the United States, NATO, and Russia. Um, and so, Derek, maybe you could give a brief update on Russia-Ukraine and how these meetings fit into that larger context. Yeah, this, I mean, these two things sort of dovetail, um, you know, obviously... Uh, any unrest in Kazakhstan is a security concern for the Russians, which would divert some attention uh, away from Ukraine um, for that. Partly for that reason, you, you know, there's already been I've already seen speculation uh, that maybe, you know, this is being uh, the, the situation in Kazakhstan is being managed from from outside the country. Uh, Tokayev has hinted at terrorists being you know responsible for uh, the destruction and, and the violence, which could mean anything could be, ex- you know, he could be talking about Islamic State. He could be talking about like, you know, NATO proxies or something, or he he, he could just be using the word terrorist because that's a, a, a sexy word that gets you a lot of attention. So it's unclear uh, whether that has any actual meaning. What is clear is that, uh, you know, this this could have some impact uh, on the situation in Ukraine. Now, uh, as you say, there are a a slew of meetings coming up uh, over the next week or so. Uh, where, uh, in which NATO and the U.S. and uh, the European Union uh, are going to be engaging with Russian officials on the Ukraine issue. Um, they're starting off actually on Friday. NATO's going to hold uh, a, a, an emergency meeting of, well, not an emergency, but, you know, impromptu meeting of uh, f- member foreign ministers uh, to talk about the Ukraine-Russia situation. Uh, that's sort of to plan to set the tone or to prepare for 
meetings next week. Uh, on Monday, the U.S., some U.S. officials are going to sit down with their Russian counterparts to discuss things. Uh, the NATO, the Russian NATO Council is going to hold uh, a meeting, which is its first, will, will be its first meeting, I think, um, in, in a couple of years. I'm not sure exactly when they had their last one, but it, it, it wasn't recently. Um, they'll hold a meeting uh, on, I believe, uh, Wednesday, uh, again, to talk about Ukraine. Uh, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe is holding a summit on Friday where there will certainly be uh, a lot of interaction between Russia and some of these same uh, countries. Uh, again, to talk about Ukraine. I, I you know, there's, there hasn't been uh, much movement in terms of actual developments on the ground, but this flurry of diplomacy, if you are of the mindset that Russia is, you know, planning some imminent invasion of Ukraine, this may be the last chance to kind of, you know, get everybody down off the ledge. I, I don't believe that an invasion is imminent, but it's still an important week to sort of see what emerges. Uh, Vladimir Putin has put himself, I think, in a situation where he needs to get some kind of a, uh, a concession from the West uh, to justify if if he wants to to justify uh, standing down and and you know pulling his forces away from the border, uh, so this this is an important week to see you know if if he gets something like that, and that'll be interesting because the outcome of this round of uh, of these talks I think will indicate something about Russian foreign policy more broadly. I mean, we all know the national security state reporters that, that all the reporters are in, that are in hock uh, to the national security state aren't going to change their tune. But hopefully, if after all that war fervor of, of a couple of weeks ago, something like this, ha uh, you know, that there is the crisis is averted, as it were, that more people will be increasingly skeptical of these hawkish reporters. Um, you would hope. Yeah, I think it's hard. Uh, I, I, my my sense is that it's difficult to replicate like uh, people are very skeptical now or increasingly skeptical seems to me of stories about iran or the middle east after the you know the the experience in iraq the experience in afghanistan um i, I don't get the sense that that translates necessarily into skepticism about when when you get stories about russia or china i feel like there's still uh, Both of those have a much deeper history uh, different, in the United yeah, there's States. Deeper history. In particular, the Middle it's, East was not a, a was not a focus of American foreign policy for right. the overwhelming majority of the country's history. It's deeper when it comes to Russia and China, and and it's a different kind of relationship. You're talking about uh, actual, you know, not I don't I I, I kind of balk at the the use of peer competitors, but these are countries yeah. that are are you know a. a more serious, sort of closer to the U.S. China level, in particular. Russia is not. Um, yeah, mean, militarily, yeah. Russia still is to some degree. That's but true. China, yeah. economically and militarily, is is um, you know it, it, you, you can you can hype them in a way that you can't really hype Iran. Like there's a limit right. to how much people are willing to believe Iran is an actual threat to the United States. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Speaking um, of the Middle East, though, actually, I should say, uh, yep. Wednesday was the anniversary of the Eisenhower Doctrine, the unveiling of the Eisenhower Doctrine, which is uh, uh, the the thing that has has gotten us enwrapped in the Middle East ever since. Uh, this was where uh, Eisenhower 
laid out uh, his doctrine that uh, the United States should stand with anybody in the Middle East who is uh, yeah, the post resisting Suez, communism, basically. basically. So yeah, it was post Suez. Yeah. This was, is the post Suez uh, where where yeah. Eisenhower got super pissed that the British, the French, and the Israelis <laughs> uh, basically risked a regional war, but ironically, and then was just brought into the region. You know, and then um, just and everything said, has then, been great since you know. then. So for yeah, for we've us done a good job. East, so, so you're welcome, <laughs> Middle yeah. East. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if there was any justice in this world, generations of American uh, policymakers would have to face some accountability for their many, many misdeeds. But we don't live in that world. Uh, and so, kind of speaking on the new Cold War, Derek, what happened with Australia and Japan? And this is this to me is really interesting because it doesn't seem that important in the first instance. But if what this becomes uh, a, a new sort of trend in, in in Eastern Hemisphere, I guess, politics, um, this could actually be really interesting because this could be the beginning of a process by which the U.S. actually disengages from the region, which I do think is coming in the next 50 years. That I, 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 I'm not sure how exactly it'll happen. Right. So um, the prime ministers uh, of Australia and Japan, Scott Morrison and Kishida Fumio, uh, signed uh, a treaty, uh, the reciprocal a reciprocal access agreement, uh, which is basically a, a mutual defense pact. It uh, uh, allows for more cooperation and uh, interoperability uh, between the Australian and Japanese militaries. Japan, all, the only other country uh, with which Japan has another agreement, has an agreement like this, is the United States. Uh, so this is kind of a big deal from from the Japanese perspective in terms of uh, their military policy, foreign policy. The reciprocal access agreement will facilitate more joint exercises, faster deployments, and improve the ability for both forces to undertake operations together. It is obviously um, a, a, a treaty that's nego being negotiated with an eye toward I don't know, whatever we're doing with China, containing China or, you know, preparing to defend ourselves against China. Um, I don't know, but it's of a piece with the AUKUS uh, pact between the UK, the US and Australia, uh, the Quad, the, the relationship between uh, India, Japan, Australia and the US. Um, you know, South Korea is to some degree involved in this, although they, uh, they try to uh, balance their relationship between the US and China. Uh, to a large extent, but but this is, as you say, sort of uh, structuring security treaties in the Indo-Pacific, uh, in theory, uh, so that the United States could uh, reduce its overt presence there without necessarily uh, sacrificing uh, kind of a, its military position and just relying on on other countries to to provide it to fill in the blank. So. Uh, so, yeah, so there's not much to comment on here, but it's a, I think it's an important development to, to take note of, given what I said. So why don't we uh, turn a little bit to the United States and the military budget, the $778 billion budget? <laughs> it's so absurd uh, that the United States has uh, signed into, uh, in, I don't know, into law? What would be the proper term? That well, signed, yeah, I mean, the uh, it's the National Defense Authorization Act, which is not quite the same as the official budget appropriation, but is indicative of how much money everybody feels like spending on the Pentagon. And, and as you say, it was $778 billion. So what's in this budget? Why is it important? And will it defend American security? Are we safe, Derek? 
Are we safe? We, I, I, you know, uh, I think we're not going to be safe until we hit a trillion at least. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. I would say two trillion, but you know, I'm, I'm more realistic. It, I mean, if people you. want more details on the on the NDAA, Emma Claire Foley, friend of the show, actually has appeared on the show, uh, wrote a piece for Quincy Institute for their Responsible Statecraft uh, website uh, on the NDAA. Um, there is a piece just out a couple of days ago. Of in the Wall Street Journal, an investigation of how much money, uh, just to take, you know, part of this budget or part of past military budgets in a microcosm, how much money uh, the United States spent on contractors in Afghanistan. It is a, a disturbingly high figure. Um, but the contractors didn't made out well. It didn't go so well for the, the taxpayers, I guess. But uh, well, Derek, you benefit from that. All the cool new restaurants in Northern Virginia, oh, you know, the, yeah, it's great. The charcuterie <laughs> plates and all the, the hot new restaurants. I mean, you should be happy I'm, uh, I'm about thrilled. this. Oh, I actually, and I also want to point if people people are actually interested in this topic. Um, there is a great historian called um, called <laughs> named Andrew Friedman who wrote a book called Covert Capital, colon, Landscapes of Denial in the Making of U.S. Empire in the Suburbs of Northern Virginia that really do show the, the imbrication of capital and built spaces. So if anyone's interested in that, uh, check out that book by Andrew Friedman, Covert Capital. And Derek, you, you should read it, and I want a book report next week on uh, <laughs> how <laughs> you no, benefit from no all, these, promises, but I'll all, these, sure. all these contract deals. But uh, sorry to interrupt, please um, no, so it's. I mean, you know, this, it's it's just it it gets to an absurdly high level. The Biden administration, like the actual Biden Pentagon, requested seven hundred and fifteen billion dollars. Congress took it upon itself to go up to seven hundred seventy eight billion. Uh, we've gone through four years because they care about America. I thought. Thank you, Congress. You know, I thought some people were were complaining about the size of the military budget under Donald Trump, but that budget has only increased uh, <laughs> since Biden took over, and I don't hear anybody complaining uh, at this point. So it's it's really kind of a dismal uh, thing, and, and uh, it, it speaks to, I think, uh, you know, we should mention the piece that you wrote for Foreign Exchanges this week. Uh, it speaks to something you've talked about before and uh, wrote about, which is really the end of mass politics as a way for people to channel their desires into uh, action or to, to have any hope that their desires will be, you know, transferred into or channeled into action. Yeah. And I, I mean, one of the things that I think is really definitional of what it feels like, you know, I think Kim Stanley Robinson used the term structure of feeling and ministry uh, for the future. And I, that's, I'm sure that's a term that has a long history. But what what it feels like to be an American today is just to talk and think about nothing but politics. Well, if you're like a PMC or an elite person like like you and I are and, and we're elites but also have no way to channel your desire and so there's this increasingly dis increasing disconnect between this constant sort of political churn <laughs> and the fact that no matter what happens whether it's mass protests whether it's a million op-eds whether it's even voting for a particular person who promises a particular thing no matter what happens nothing changes and and particularly if you're under 45 your experience in life has just been things getting shittier and shittier your entire your entire life 
Um, so uh, one of the things that I've been trying to do in the last year is tr- is investigate why this this is. And and one of the things that I think we're really um, experiencing is this disconnect between the forms of politics, the, these mass political parties, the mass media, social media, this sort of scrum of massness. Um, a, a lot of these things, obviously not social media, but you know its antecedents found earlier. You know, are products of the nineteen teens and the nineteen twenties. You know, the radio, uh, cheap print, you know, sort of modern mass political parties. So we have these structures and institutions of the twentieth century, and and which we learn to operate in, or we're told to operate in throughout our entire lives, that seem to be in, totally ineffective in channeling any form of political will. And I think that's a major reason why everyone feels so disconnected and 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 so um, wacky these days, and and so, so uh, sort of like off kilter is because there's a complete disconnect between political desire and actual politics. So that's what I was trying to get at in that piece. And I think the military budget is is just you know one of the many examples of it, but it's the one that's particularly clear in the realm of national security is that there's no reason for their to, for this country to spend 778 billion dollars on the military when it faces no real uh, challenges to any of its vital interests security um and we have faced so many obvious problems at home from COVID to inequality to horrible infrastructure to, you know, lack of employment to people having, you know, working more for less. Um, and so it's just a, a particularly salient uh, instantiation of the general political um, experience that I think everyone's been going through in the last few years. I don't know. I don't know, Derek. What do you think about uh, this stuff? I, I mean, I I agree with you that, that, you know, the avenues of mass politics and now even sort of, you know, other things like protest. Are, are you know don't don't seem to get us very far. But I, I what's striking to me about this current moment is I feel like there's never been a time where more people had a greater ability to talk about politics. Right. It feels like right. there's politics everywhere in a way that it saturates everything in a way that you know even 20 years ago or or 30 years ago was not the case. Uh, and yet, y- you combine that with the the fact, I think, or the you know, sort of uh, what you're talking about, the idea that that the actual ability, your actual ability to influence politics, is shrinking and shrinking down to to nothingness. And it's 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 not surprising uh, that people feel just alienated, just generally alienated from everything because they do more talking about this stuff to less effect uh, than I think has ever been the case. And it's, it's a weird and uh, I think not, not good, clearly, uh, dichotomy. And I think what what compounds all of this is that a lot of the other social identities that, you know, previously defined what it meant to be an American, you know, the famous, you know, Obviously, churches, uh, religion, that has been in decline for a long time. But even the famous bowling alone argument, the bowling leagues, the moose clubs, the elks clubs, um, the, 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 the homemakers associations or whatever used to exist in the 1950s, 1960s, 70s, 80s and beyond. And not to say these things weren't patriarchal and, and racist in a lot of ways. Um, um, but these these forms of social embeddedness have almost totally disappeared. So we're totally alienated. We identify more with these po- political parties. We talk about nothing but politics, yet we have no way to channel our political desire. And so I think that everyone's getting increasingly tired and increasingly frustrated with what's going on um, in the United States. And I, I don't know if you get the sense, 
Derek. Um, but even on Twitter, like everyone just seems exhausted. Like people are going through the 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 scripts, they're going through the motions, but no one <laughs> seems like really invested anymore in a lot of these ar- ar- arguments. And I think you see it, you know. I think canceling has kind of declined in the last six-ish or so months because people aren't even invested enough to cancel anymore. They're not even getting the pure pleasure of destroying someone else's life. Uh, and when that happens, when you're not experiencing schadenfreude, that's not good for a society. <laughs> I, I mean, I genuinely think, you know, I don't want to get into like a thing about cancel culture or whatever, but, you know, the idea of dunking on somebody on Twitter, on social media, uh, emerged from a place of like, wow, look, we can actually interact with like right. a politician or a pundit or whatever. We can call this guy uh, a fucking idiot. A jerk. To his, yeah. <laughs> to his virtual face. Uh, and maybe that'll do something. Like maybe that'll wreck their reputation or, you know, uh, have some political cost to them. And it's become clear clearer and clearer that it doesn't really and so you it are just not. doing it for the uh the schadenfreude and i think the yeah the the appeal of that empty empty activity has sort of worn off and i would say even i mean to to your point about uh kind of outside institutions that used to provide some sense of identity you know not only are, are churches you know it's church shrinking and and the elks clubs and the, the all those things are sort of retreating from from the public space but what's left of them are also becoming dominated by politics like you go to church and what is you know uh you know what are the american churches talking about they're they're, they're constantly talking about politics uh you know what are what are you doing and you know if you go to one of these clubs or so you're probably uh shouting you know let's go brandon or you're complaining about donald trump or whatever but it's still you know it's still politics it's still it's everywhere it saturates everything Yeah. And so I think this is one of the reasons why everyone feels off kilter. Um, And that's why you've got to listen and subscribe to American Prestige uh, because, you know, we'll we'll give you (laughs) guiding lights. Yeah, yeah, we're apolitical, right? We'll we'll guide you through this difficult difficult time. Well, Derek, I think that's enough. We've got a great uh, interview with Gene Bajelon, uh, the first part in what will be two or three part series on the history of the Kurds. We hope you all enjoy it. And thank you very much for listening. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye bye. Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to our weekly interview. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with Derek Davison. And we're very happy to be joined by my friend and colleague, uh, Gene Bajalon, Mean Gene Bajalon, Assistant Professor at Missouri State, uh, and also the co-host of This Is Revolution podcast. And be sure to check that out. I've been on a few times, and Derek and I um, actually were on once and, and released it on the American Prestige feed. So uh, definitely check out that podcast. And Gene, thanks so much for being here, man. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, uh, one of the things that you're a specialist on is the history of the Kurds. Um, You got your PhD, you're a historian of the Middle East, um, and, you know, the Kurds, the Kurdish population is something that uh, Americans might have heard about, you know, when we're talking about Iraq and the various other goings-on in the (laughs) Middle East. This is a very Trumpian way to (laughs) The Kurds are something that more and more people are talking about. (laughs) More and more people are talking. Everyone's talking about the Kurds. But I'm not sure that people have such a, a great sense of the Kurdish people or their history. So personally, I like to start in like antiquity mm-hmm. um, to really get going. But uh, w- why don't you start with telling us about the history of the Kurds and the Kurdish people, um, where you think it makes sense. And feel free, you know, you don't need to start in 1970. Feel free to go back as long as you want. Well, obviously, as with 
sort of most national groups, there are myths that connect the Kurds to various ancient peoples, whether that's the Median uh, people of ancient Persia or, uh, you know, various groups that were identified in the works of Xenophon and things like that. And of course, you know, during the 19th century, European Orientalists would come to the Middle East and try and draw these connections between the various uh, groups that were living there and the people they'd come across in their studies of the classics and uh, and the Bible. But of course, those kind of mythologies are created in modern era, uh, in the modern era, and in many ways are sort of designed to legitimize the Kurds as a national group. So if we want to actually talk about when we first start hearing about the Kurds, it's with the rise of Islam. And really, um, we don't know too much about the Kurdish community until about... Which you just, the, to specify, you mean like the 7th century? The 8th yeah, the century? Se- yeah, the 7th, 8th, and 8th century are where we start seeing the Kurds uh, as In a the group. Arabian Peninsula, is that what we're talking about? Where where do we hear about them? We hear about them basically within the process of the Islamic conquest. So the Kurds are a group that uh said to live in the mountainous regions of the Zagros uh, mountains uh, that are in western Iran. And, you know, this is roughly corresponds to the territory that Kurds call Kurdistan today. So it's this large mountainous region that stretches from the borders of the Iranian plateau through northern Iraq up to the Caucasus Mountains and then westwards towards the Anatolian plateau. Now, of course, that territory is not only or historically was not only inhabited by Kurds. There were a variety of different people groups, Armenians, Assyrians, uh, you know, Tur- later on Turks, Persians, other groups live in that region as well. But we begin to hear about the Kurds with the Islamic conquests. They are a group that are said to have re- initially resisted the Islamic armies, and then eventually they convert en masse to Islam uh, in the sort of 9th, 10th, and 11th century and become one of the people groups within the Islamic community. Gene, just a quick question because I'm interested. What do we think, obviously the use of the term religion isn't really accurate to describe mm -hmm. this time, but let's just say, what was their religious philosophy, their theology before the Islamic conquest and the uh, large-scale conversions? There were lots of debates, you know, and also it's important to note that when we are talking about these early sources, they are often written after the fact or by people who did not have direct information on these communities. But various Islamic sources highlight different religions existing amongst groups that are said to be Kurds. So that includes Christianity, but also uh, fire worshipping, which probably indicates some form of Zaradostrianism or some kind of cult that at least takes on Zaradostrian uh, characteristics, not necessarily the Zaradostrian religion, which was largely a, a religion of the aristocracy. So, you know, we don't really know that much, you know, and, and, and the Kurds as a group, as we know them today, really come into being within the process of Islamist, uh, you know, the Islamic conquests and you know, as a consolidated sort of national identity, that's not really something that takes place until the late 19th and early 20th century. But in a general sense, when we talk about the term Kurd, I would say it's best to think of them as one of the people groups that inhabit the Middle East. There are a variety of groups. We can talk about Arabs, Persians, Turks, 
and Kurds, and we can see them on within that kind of family of identities. But of course, you know, before the modern era, there's significant overlap between these uh, designations. For example, you would have Kurdish tribes that might claim Arab origins and say that they're originally an Arab tribe that had become Kurds. You might have Turkish tribes that, uh, you know, claim to have a Kurdish origin. So there's an overlap in that sense. And yeah, also, and what always brings that home to me is like the Judeo-Arabs, yes. you know, who were a very prominent group in, in, in sort of the Arabian Peninsula around the time that Islam begins to, to really uh, get off the ground and, and begin conquest. So I think that sort of syncretism, and that's not even the right term because, because that describes like two things. It's all one miasma in a sense. And so th these distinctions aren't as clear as they become in modernity. Exactly. There's there's no necessarily clear distinction between all these different groups. There's overlaps. For example, you would have Kurdish-speaking villagers who would be members of the uh, Armenian Orthodox Church. They wouldn't be regarded as, as Kurds because of their language. They'd be regarded as Armenians because of their church. So these identities are not consolidated, as you say, uh, as they are in the uh, modern era. In addition, there are also, within certain contexts, class dynamics behind who is a Kurd and who is not a Kurd. So, for example, many Kurdish tribes people would see themselves as a separate racial group from the Kurdish-speaking peasantry below them and would get angry when outsiders would come and call everybody in the region a Kurd. And they said, no, good Lord, no, these, these people below us, they're not Kurds. We're Kurds because we're a tribal group. This is not too dissimilar from the Arab identity. The, the urban populations in the Middle East might speak Arabic, but they would not necessarily identify with the term Arab, as that would be designating the tribal groups that live in the desert uh, and, you know, have a kind of even negative connotation. The term Turk was, was often seen as having a negative connotation connotation as being applied to the peasantry as opposed to the ruling elites of the Ottoman Empire who would speak Turkish, but not necessarily regard themselves as Turkish. So these ethnic uh, terms, these ethnic identities in the pre-modern era are overlapping, are vague. They have class, in certain contexts, they have class implications in certain contexts. They're, they are almost intermingled Sometimes they have religious connotations. As I said, with the Armenians, if you're a Christian who speaks Kurdish, you wouldn't be regarded as a Kurd because Christianity uh, would be your defining trait. Of course, that changes in the 19th uh, century with the rise of nationalism and the sort of beginnings of a political project to think about the Kurds as a nation in the modern sense of the word. So, Gene, you're really a specialist on the Ottoman Empire and sort of mm -hmm. the pre-1914 nationalist period. So, could you give a sense, because we haven't done an episode yet on the Ottoman Empire, and we mm -hmm. absolutely must, but how does political organization among these different racial or ethnic or religious groups kind of all combined, how does that function before the 19th century? And then mm -hmm. what changes in the 19th century? And why is that crucial to understanding Kurdish history? Sure. So, when you look at a map of the Ottoman Empire, you know, in the 16th and 17th century, you have this big splodge of green all over the map. But that's kind of misleading because in many ways, the Ottoman Empire was more akin, well, at certain periods of time especially, was more akin to the Holy Roman Empire than it was to uh, a modern sort of consolidated uh, national state. So uh, some parts of the Ottoman Empire, for example, were under firmer central control where the central government would appoint people on the borderlands, such as places like Kurdistan, uh, the Ottomans often recognized indigenous aristocrats or tribal leaders and allowed them to rule their districts as hereditary fiefs. 
Uh, and then, uh, as long as they pay taxes, right? That is the big, well, sometimes it wasn't taxes. Sometimes it was military service. So for example, military service, some form of obeisance, military service taxes. So with the Kurds particular, there was, um, uh, a desire to mobilize the Kurds as a military force against Iran. Uh, Kurdistan was emerged as this frontier region between the Ottoman and Safavid empire. And because it was mountainous and difficult to control, many of those districts were left in the hands of indigenous Kurdish aristocrats. And the Ottomans and Persians would vie for influence over this region by sort of initially, basically, the Safavid Persians lost control of the region because they attempted to impose their own followers as governors in the region. The Ottomans were able to mobilize all those displaced Kurdish aristocrats, get them on side. And we have this long period in which Kurdistan is not really uh, partitioned, but rather it's a frontier zone in which there's this political game taking place. And there is a number of different players. There's Istanbul, there is the uh, uh, Iranian Shah, and then there are some districts which are under central government control. Sometimes those governors who come from the central government conflict with the Kurdish indigenous aristocrats. But basically, you have this kind of feudalistic system uh, uh, in the region. And, and this is pre-19th century, just to give specific dates. This is Yes, this is pre-19th century. So you have this emirate system. And there, this is not uncommon on the edges of the Ottoman Empire, where central government control isn't particularly strong. In the Balkans, for example, you had Romania was a largely autonomous principality under Ottoman uh, sovereignty. You look at North Africa, the the rulers of North Africa are very independent from Istanbul. So you have this uh, system, this kind of condominium in the Ottoman Empire in a territorial sense. Now, in addition to that, you have religious autonomy within the Ottoman Empire and communities organized on religious grounds. This is often called the Milet system, which is, you know, based on Islamic principles whereby certain religious groups, Christians, Jews, other monotheists are granted certain rights under Islam. And basically the Milet system evolves over time. You know, during the early modern period, it wasn't such a centralized institution. although it would become that in the 19th century. So, for example, uh, what sort of happened with the Millet system is that, you know, the head rabbi in Istanbul was really just the head rabbi of Istanbul. But in the 19th century, as they bureaucratized the Millet system and sort of modernized it, he became the head of a empire-wide religious organization. So you had Muslims recognized under law, and then you had non-Muslim communities with their own communal autonomy. And then you had this kind of other system where you had on the fringes of empire, various indigenous groups, tribes, aristocrats, and things like that, having some kind of autonomy under Ottoman rule. So it's not really a centralized, consolidated state. It is relatively centralized compared to the European states of the time. The core regions of the empire in the Balkans and Anatolia have a relatively strong version of feudalism, whereby all land is theoretically distributed by the sultan, as opposed to in some European countries where, you know, dukes own their land as uh, their land is connected with them rather than being the personal property of the king to distribute as, as, as he wishes. But it's still a kind of land-based feudal uh, economy and a decentralized state. And of course, 
in the 19th century. Wait, Ajeem, but, but let's get to the 19th century in one second. I just have a quick follow-up, and then Derek has a question. So if a, a, a Kurdish person traveling to Istanbul in the 17th and 18th centuries, it would feel like a different society, or would there be a lot of cultural overlap? Um, it would feel very different, right? Okay. The Kurdish highlands are relatively isolated. Certainly, there was a degree of Ottomanization that took place over the course of Ottoman rule from about the 16th to the 18th century. For example, the dominant language of literature before the uh, 16th century in Kurdistan was Persian. Slowly, slowly, over time, Turkish becomes more and more common amongst Kurdish aristocrats. It's not, uh, you know, as a kind of high culture language. In some of the cities that are under firmer imperial control places like Diyarbakir, which was a major trading post there, you have the spread of Ottoman-style architecture. But counterposed with this, because you had these Kurdish principalities uh, and uh, aristocrats, those principalities became their own centers of culture, which were actually respected by the imperial center. So, for example, the traveler Evliya Çelebi, uh, who was a 17th century Ottoman tra traveler who came from Istanbul, was very impressed by the civilization that existed in the Kurdish principality of Bitlis. He was, you know, he praised the Islamic scholars that existed there. He, pr uh, he praised the skills and the learning that was taking place there. So there would, there, there would be differences between uh, uh, the regions. But of course, with the long period of Ottoman rule, certain Ottoman customs and practices began to gradually filter into these regions, but certainly not in a very invasive sense. And, you know, the life for your average Kurdish peasant or your Armenian peasant who lived under the rule of the Kurdish tribes probably wasn't that much different from pre-Ottoman conquest. Gene, I, I have a question about language. Um, one of the things that um, sort of hit me um, when, I, when I went into uh, grad school to study uh, the Middle East, Middle East, uh, you know, topics, uh, was to learn that there isn't, I mean, there's a Kurdish language, but it's very dialectical and the dialects seem very, uh, distinct from one another in a way that, um, I think is, is to, a, you know, to a greater degree than let's say Persian, uh, or Arabic. Um, I'm curious, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about the languages uh, of Kurdish or the dialects of Kurdish and how they developed, how they came to be uh, kind of distinct from one another and how that played into, you know, some of the things that we talked about earlier, the, the idea of a uh, ethnic formation. And then, you know, as we get into the 19th century of a, uh, the development of a Kurdish nationalism. Sure. So the linguistic diversity amongst the Kurds has been acknowledged in some of the very earliest sources talking about the Kurds, like Al-Masudi from the ninth century. He says, Kurds speak Ajami. And Ajami means convert, but within the context of Islamic scholarship, it came to mean Iranian. Sometimes people say Persian, but there is a distinction there. Uh, so the Arab scholars realized that Kurds spoke a kind of Iranian language. But then Masudi goes on to note, each tribe speaks its own Logat al-Kurdi, its own dialect of, of of Kurdish. 
What those dialects were at that time, we don't know. But we know in the early modern period, there are several important dialects that are spoken amongst Kurds. The largest is Kirmanji. Kirmanji is spoken amongst the Kurds who live in the north and was had an important literary function in that it was used within the context of Islamic education. The Kurds had followed a distinct branch of uh, Sunni Muslim jurisprudence, uh, the Shafi'i branch, which was different from the Hanafi branch that the Ottomans sponsored. And so the Kurdish language became associated with Shafi'i teaching. And so it became an educational language within schools. On the In other parts of Kurdistan, for example, in what we call Iraqi Kurdistan, uh, the Surani dialect, which is the dominant dialect that is spoken uh, in the southern regions of Kurdistan, was called Babani at the time. Why was it called Babani? Because a local principality, the Babans, sponsored it. So they sponsored the language in their court and created a literary tradition there. So you have, uh, in the early modern period, different institutions sponsoring different literary traditions amongst the Kurds in these different dialects. Now, the thing with the dialects, though, is that they are really, as you know, very different. So, for example, Kirmanji, the northern dialect, and Sorani, the southern dialect, they have significant differences, including, for example, Kirmanji has gender, Sorani doesn't have gender, right? They are from the same root, but they, they are significantly different. Other languages, such as Zazaki or Gorani, which are also counted as dialects of Kurdish, actually have a different linguistic origin from Sorani and Kirmanji. So they are closer to the languages spoken in Gilan in northern Iran than they are to the Western Iranian languages from which modern Kurdish or the modern varieties of Kurdish come. So my personal theory and, uh, you know, as a historian is that dialects came to be defined as Kurdish because they were spoken by people who were identified as Kurds, right? So it's not the language that was being defining who was a Kurd and who wasn't a Kurd, but the, uh, it, it was the vice versa. Outsiders would say, these people are Kurds. So this language, which is somehow an Iranian language, which I don't understand, is some kind of Kurdish. So I think there's an interest. We often think of language as, as being definitional in nationalism because of the important role of linguistic nationalism in Europe. But I think uh, in the Kurdish case, Language is an important marker of the Kurds, but I don't think it was the sort of primary unifying marker. It became a kind of symbol, which was which outsiders saw Kurds as uh, you know that saw as defining Kurds rather than being this core identity. That's interesting. That's that's sort of the reverse of what you would say about a language like Arabic that you know mm -hmm. sort of emerges from a common root and then you know everybody spreads out and they mm -hmm. kind of speak it you know different ways in different regions and it starts to break apart what you're saying is uh it, people started from the other from the opposite premise basically they they said uh i've decided that these people are all kurds therefore what they are speaking must be kurdish and it kind yes. of uh, went the other direction that's interesting so, Gene, just to pick up on that, I want to get a little bit more deep into Kurdish society itself. Um, so maybe you could explain, obviously, this could be, you know, a 40-lecture series, but in brief, the differences between um, Shafai'i and Hanafi Islam, and forgive my probably awful pronunciation, but what distinguishes the Kurdish form of Islam or the form of jurisprudence that the Kurds abide by from the Ottoman, um, from the Hanafi uh, jurisprudence that the Ottomans embrace? Sure. So, 
within Sunni Islam, there are a variety of different schools of uh, Islamic law, uh, like that are recognized, recognized schools of Islamic uh, law as legitimate methodologies to solve, you know, uh, legal disputes. People often think of the ulema in Islam, the, 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 the scholars of Islam, as the equivalent of priests in the church tradition and the Christian tradition, but they really aren't. They're more like lawyers and judges. So legal schools are very important. And the Shafi'i... Very similar to Judaism, I would say, uh, yeah. in, in that sense, where you have different responsa and rabbis that you go to and, you know, the Babylonian Talmud versus the Jerusalem Talmud. So a different form of social organization, really. Yeah. And Shafi'i, uh, the Shafi'i branch of jurisprudence was the dominant branch in Iran before the mass conversion of Iran to Shiism during the... Uh, 15th and 16th century. So the, so, so this was, uh, you know, I'm not an expert on, um, Islamic jurisprudence, but there are sort of different interpretations of, of, uh, law. I think, for example, I think Shafi'is are a little bit less strict on, on certain aspects from the Hanafi schools. So I don't want to, I don't want to give wrong information about the precise differences, uh, uh, between these two groups, but it comes down to, how they would interpret Islamic law. And one of the things that the Ottoman state really pioneered compared to other earlier Islamic states was that they took their role as the sort of purveyors of Islamic justice very uh, seriously, and they established a highly centralized system of uh, judges called the Qadi system, a kind of system that hadn't existed before where it's under the control of Istanbul and they would send out judges across the Ottoman Empire. One of the things they did in Kurdistan, though, was allow local Kurdish dynasts to appoint their own legal scholars from the Shafi'i school, as opposed to imposing Hanafi scholars uh, from, um, from, from Istanbul on the region as well. So it comes down to the interpretation of Islamic law. These groups recognize each other as legitimate but it's a kind of it's a kind of uh, preference. It's not like the Sunni Shia divide. And of course, not all Kurds are Sunnis. Not all Kurds are Shafi'is. Some Kurds are Hanafis. Some Kurds are Shia. Some Kurds are Alevi. Some Kurds are uh, Yazidi. If you if Yazidis, I mean, historically they were counted as being Kurds as well. So there is religious diversity amongst the Kurds, but obviously Shafi'ism is something that becomes very associated. Uh, with 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 the Kurdish community. And so we actually haven't talked about the social organization of Kurdish society. You've mentioned that there are mountainous people. So but how is society actually organized? We understand that there are units by, you know, by early modernity within the larger Ottoman system, but what is the form of social organization? Sure. So obviously the stereotype which comes from European orientalists but is also propagated by Turkish, Persian and Arab nationalists that Kurds are just a collection of tribes is somewhat misleading. There are a variety of different modes within which the Kurds live. So you have nomadic tribes, you know, uh, that engage in pastoralism. They will, you know, take flocks to the Zozan, the, the summer pastures, and then they will come down to the Kishlik, which is the, you know, the, the, the winter pastures with their flocks. And these are some of the, you know, these are some of the most militant tribes. Some of them, of course, engage in banditry as well as part of their way of life. And this is one of the reasons historians speculate that the Kurds converted to Islam so quickly was because their 
pastoralist way of life was very much in tune with the uh, way of life of the uh, uh, Arabs coming out of Arabia. But of course, you have sedentary tribal groups, like my family, my clan, which I come from, was not a nomadic group and didn't even live in the mountains. They lived in a river, uh, they lived on, on flatlands and engaged in farming. And they had sort of more feudalistic kind of relationships. So there was tribal kinship, but there was a peasantry that was exploited by an aristocratic elite that owned the land, or at least had the political power to extract the surplus from the peasantry. And then you have urban populations. You know, uh, again, the, a big myth is that there were no Kurdish urban populations before the 20th century, but you have Kurdish po uh, towns, places like Suleimania, which was built by a Kurdish dynast uh, in the 17th century, in the 18th century, and became a reasonable sized town. Whole number, you know, people engaging in crafts, uh, people engaging in trade and, and being merchants. So those groups also exist within Kurdish society, although they're a lot smaller. And then you have, um, uh, although most sort of Kurdish immigration to the big cities of the Middle East happened in the 20th century. There were very old Kurdish quarters existing in some of the important Middle Eastern cities, including in Baghdad, most famously in uh, Aleppo and in, in Damascus. There are very old Kurdish quarters in those districts as well. So uh, Kurdish social organization before the 20th century was diverse, although I would say the majority of the Kurdish population was uh, made up, or, or the majority of the people we would probably describe as being Kurds today was made up by, by tribal groups, the subject penitentiary of those tribal groups, uh, and that those tribal groups would be sort of split between both nomads and sedentary groups, with some urban communities interspersed with that. So, Gene, take us, you know, before we get into really kind of, uh, I mean, we've sort of started to talk about the Ottoman period, but I, I'd kind of like to um, detour back a bit and talk about some of the um, kind of middle period Kurdish principalities that emerged. I mean, the the, the most famous uh, probably being the, the Ayyubids founded by uh, the famous Saladin of, of Crusades fame. Um, but there were others that emerged in sort of northern uh, Iraq and, and um, you know, especially uh, in the wake of the Mongol conquest, there were there were uh, Kurdish small Kurdish principalities that emerged in that sort of chaotic period. Can you sort of talk a talk a little bit about some of these kingdoms or the ones that you you know find the most uh, interesting or illuminating? Sure. So, you know, with the decline of the central authority of the Islamic Caliphate, the Umayyads and then the Abbasids, you know, one of the first things that started to happen was the groups living in the parts of the Islamic empire that were harder to control began to break away from uh, the, the rule of the caliphate. So we see gradually in the, t uh, prior to the Turkic invasions of the 11th century, we begin to see on the frontiers of the Islamic world, the formation of Kurdish principalities, or at least principalities, which history tells us, or, you know, subsequent histories have told us, were founded by Kurds. So the Marwanids are one, you know, they, 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 were, they were a Kurdish principality founded uh, in the region around Diyarbakir, uh, which at this period probably wasn't inhabited by a majority 
Kurds. It was probably inhabited by Armenians and various Christian uh, groups. And in fact, the term Kurdistan kind of evolves as almost a political designation to talk about the regions over which Kurdish tribal groups claimed rule, regions that were probably inhabited by Christians and, and, and non-Muslims at this period. So there's a very long period where you have the Marwanids, the Rawanids in uh, Azerbaijan. These groups begin to appear with the decline of the caliphate. Now, the Turkic invasions of the 11th century are a really critical moment for this because these Kurdish political uh, principalities are basically swept away by the Turkic invasion, swept away by the rise of the Seljuk. Uh, who conquer Iran and then cross into Anatolia and begin the process by which Turkey becomes Turkey. And although the Kurds are conquered, there's a kind of dual dynamic because Kurds are also integrated into the military apparatus of these Turkic states. So one of the successor states of the um, Selchuks uh, was the Zenganids. And the Zenganids integrated Saladin's family into their military apparatus. Saladin's father uh, became an important governor within the uh, uh, Zenganid state. His uncle, Sherko, became an important military commander. So these Turkic states would integrate the Kurds and Kurdish tribal groups into their militaries. And one of the reasons Saladin was able to come to power was that when the Zenganids sent uh, the army their army into Egypt to intervene into the affairs of Egypt. There's a whole story behind that, which we don't need to go into, but they basically intervened into Egypt to combat the Fatimid Caliphate. There was basically a power struggle that took place uh, following the death. It was initially to support the Fatimids, I think, but then, yeah, yeah there was a breakdown in that. It was there was uh, a break, that relationship yeah. that the Crusaders were involved in. It was sort of a push and pull, like, uh, you know, they, the Fatimids needed help against the Crusaders, but then the Fatimids decided that maybe working with the Crusaders against the Turks would be better. And, yeah, uh, because yeah, it's important to note that the Fatimids were Shias and uh, the, the, the Turkic groups were basically acting in the name of Sunnism and were part of this sort of Sunni revival that was taking place in the wake of the Crusades. So Saladin basically came to power through a kind of factional fight within the army in which he gained the support of the Kurdish tribes within uh, within the military and was able to sort of seize power. Uh, and then, uh, you know, this didn't mean like Kurds and Turks were at war with each other, but there were some kind of like uh, sources indicate that there was some kind of ethnic solidarity that helped Saladin come to power. Now, once the Ayyubids was established, that was sort of less relevant, but... Um, Basically, you have these Turco-Kurdish, this Turco-Kurdish state being formed by the uh, Ayyubids, which Kurds and Turks form a kind of military elite within it. And what um, years is this? Just to be clear, this is this is in the this is in the 12th century. Now, so this is super early, yeah. Yeah. So, the, so the, this basically breaks the state breaks down. I mean, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the uh, famous Islamic historian Ibn Khaldun, who talks about the dynastic cycles. Sure. Yeah. So the Khaldunian sort of cycle take, uh, is, very, is very quick. You know, you have this early phase, and then eventually the Ayyubids are kind of displaced by their own Turkic slave soldiers, the Mamluks. But the last remnant of the Ayyubids survives into the early modern period and was initially the uh, a subject of the Ottoman 
uh, sultan, the, the the city of Hasankep, which was actually the the center for sort of political controversy because the Turkey built a dam that flooded this historical city. Uh, that was the last bastion of the Ayyubids that lasted into the 16th century. So basically, hmm. that's a kind of high point of Kurdish involvement in the core politics of the Middle East. But, you know, after the fall of the Ayyubids, the Kurds continue to play an important role on the frontiers of empire. So, for example, the Mamluks attempt to appoint a commander of all the Kurds in order to mobilize the Kurds against the Mongols who were invading during this period. So they try to, they try to, they establish this position uh, of like a generalissimo of the Kurds, which they think might be a good method to kind of get all these Kurdish tribes to unite and fight the Mongols who are pushing in from Iran. So the Kurds are sort of playing this important role on the frontiers between, particularly between the sort of western half of the Islamic world and the eastern half of the Islamic world. And that role really continues down to the uh, Ottoman period, where they're the kind of guardians of the frontier. And, and, and central powers can't push too hard on them, because if they do push too hard on them, what do they do? They defect to the other imperial side and you end up losing control of the region. So they, they, there are moments where Kurds play important roles in the sort of central imperiums of the Middle East. The Ayyubids are this high point, but uh, even when that's not the case, they are very important actors on the frontiers of, of empire. So that's really interesting because that really informs a lot of what we spoke about when we were talking about the Ottomans and the relationship between the core and periphery. So why don't we turn now to, you know, the 19th century and mm -hmm. um, what happens there? And maybe before we even do that, you could sort of place the Ottoman Empire in the larger sort of um, – European history uh, through which it is usually framed in the United States, you know, famously referred to as the sick man of Europe mm -hmm. during World War One, and, and so could you situate the Ottoman Empire and w what is, it's such a unique polity, um, you know, between these two worlds, and then maybe that'll help us understand uh, Kurdish history itself. Sure. So the Ottoman Empire was very much an early modern state, right? Obviously, a lot of Orientalist literature sort of condemned the Ottoman Empire as a kind of hangover from the medieval period, something that was completely out of time. But really, the success of the Ottoman Empire was built upon gunpowder technology. It was built upon, upon an infantry-based military. In fact, you know, many of the early experimentations in infantry forces in Europe were inspired by uh, the Yenichari, the, the, the elite military units. So, of course, the Ottomans adapted a lot of Islamic uh, statecraft, such as the utilization of slave elites within the military, but were very much this kind of early modern state, and by Islamic standards, were pretty centralized and were able to avoid some of the earlier crises that had overrun previous Islamic empires when you have tribal groups coming in and conquering those groups, the Ottomans were able to sort of navigate that and survive and evolve over time. And the Ottoman state, the way I see it, it went through many of the sort of parallel developments to those developments that happened in Europe. Administrative developments, uh, a shift away from a feudal-based economy to a more marketized uh, system, 
We often think, for example, of the 17th and 18th century as periods of Ottoman decline, but I always ask decline for who, right? Yes, as a military entity, the Ottoman state was in decline, but you had, you know, better living standards in some parts of the empire. You had, you know, innovations in architecture. Uh, one of the transformations of the Janissary, which is very interesting if you ask me. Explain what that is for people who don't the, know what the Janissary are. Yeah, the Janissary were an elite military unit that terrified the uh, Europeans. They were one of the first sort of professionally trained musket-wielding infantry armies. Uh, Europeans were so terrified of them that they had to mock them. So if you look at the clothes that clowns wear traditionally, those that clothes was basically uh, made to mock the Genesary. And when you see a Genesary and you see a clown, you're like, oh yeah, I get it now. So they were the super elite military uh, force that was able to smash the feudal armies of Europe. Not so much technologically, but organizationally. Why? Because the Ottoman army was based on this core of slave infantry that was like a professional army. Then they had this feudal cavalry, which was uh, the, the, uh, the Sipahi, uh, these guys got their feudal fiefs, but they could have their feudal fiefs taken away by the sultan, so they weren't completely independent. Why was this important? Well, it meant that the Ottomans could field a large army every campaign system, uh, a season, whereas the king of Hungary, he calls all his lords, one year they might turn up, the next year they might not turn up. So the Ottomans could sustain this like military uh, advance because they could mobilize their, their, their human resources. They had a strong organizational capacity. Logistics, just to underline, are absolutely crucial to military history. That's the major argument for why Rome was able to spread as it was. It had the best logistical system. Exactly. People people get very excited about military geniuses and this, that, and the other, but it often comes down to like boring... Supplies. Supplies. Supplies, supplies and convincing everybody to turn up to battle. That's, a, that's another uh, key issue. So... What happens is the Janissary begins to break down for a variety of e reasons. The Ottoman Empire goes into economic crisis. They can't pay the Janissaries anymore. A lot of them become artisans, uh, take second jobs. They sell off their positions. But what's the byproduct of that? They end up acting in some ways as a popular militia to protect the interests of uh, working people in urban centers in the empire. So, uh, And they act as a constitutional limit on the Ottoman, on Ottoman absolutism. One of the most fascinating books on Ottoman history in recent years was written by a scholar called Baki Tezjam, who wrote a book called The Second Ottoman Empire, where he makes the argument that, you know, the Ottoman Empire, uh, in the so-called period of decline, is actually developing in, a, in parallel to Europe. When we look at the English cutting off the king's head, we see it as a progressive shift away from absolute monarchy. But when we see the, the ulama and the janissary using legal arguments to depose a tyrannical sultan, we see that as, as, a, as a symptom of decline, right? And we have to ask the question why, uh, why that is. We, we see a shift away from sort of absolutist government to a, a, basically a de facto constitutional system where you have do you think that's orientalism the interpretation of, of western scholars i think yeah i think definitely there's there's a degree of uh orientalism to it you know i mean of course there is you know they, they viewed the ottoman empire as as something that was completely different from europe so they couldn't see a kind of parallel now of course you can go too far the other way and write a whig history of the Ottoman Empire where it was progressing and then bad things happened in the 19th century and all this like progress was ruined. But even 19th century uh, 
uh, reformists in the Ottoman Empire understood these interesting dynamics. For example, Namik Kemal, the poet of freedom of the 19th century, he called the Genesary the armed parliament of the people because they were, you know, they were a way for working people in the city to get redress in certain contexts. So, so we have this period in which the Ottoman Empire is, uh, is becoming less of an absolutist state and more of an oligarchical state, more of a state where there is legal and constitutional leadership, uh, limits on, on rulership. So there's this kind of shift taking place between the reign of Suleiman the Magnificent and the sultans of the 17th and 18th century. And I, and I find this is a very fascinating period. For example, what the argument traditionally about why you didn't have major scientific development in the uh, in the Islamic world and in the Ottoman Empire in particular was that, oh, you know, they they the, there's various re religious reasons that, you know, the Muslims decided back in the, you know, 12th century that they didn't believe in innovation anymore. And, and so they stopped caring about science. The new argument says that, no, actually, one of the reasons that scientific progress was stifled in the Ottoman Empire was political. Why was it political? Scientific experimentation came, came to be associated with absolutist political projects, and the more populist projects became suspicious of science and, and uh, people doing too much maths and, 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 and patronage. So whereas in Europe, absolutist monarchies became critical vehicles through which scientific uh, experimentation was supported in the Ottoman Empire, the, the, the failure, let's say, to develop absolutism uh, actually stymied uh, scientific development, not some inherent closing of the Muslim mind, if that makes sense. To right, guys. not some sort of essentialist uh, Muslim mind argument. So the Ottoman Empire is clearly um, in transition in the late 18th and early 19th mm -hmm. centuries. So maybe where are the Kurds in this transition and how are they relating to, uh, not an empire in decline necessarily, but an empire that's in transformation? Sure. Basically, they're navigating these changes. The in the in the early 16th century, there is a kind of political settlement come at between the Ottoman Empire and the Kurdish aristocracy. In return for support and military service, the Kurds, uh, or, or at least the Kurdish aristocrats, are allowed to rule their traditional fiefdoms as they say fit. Of course, they have to turn up for military campaign. Some districts may have to pay a little bit of tax. There's a kind of hierarchy. The more prestigious Kurdish aristocrats have more autonomy. Uh, the, the less prestigious Kurdish tribes and aristocrats have less autonomy. Uh, but you have this kind of political settlement. Now, as the central government of the Ottoman Empire and the Sultanate weakens, the empire also becomes more decentralized. So we begin to see Ottoman governors sent out to the provinces basically taking a lot of liberties with what they do out there. So there is there are periods in which the Kurds, uh, Kurdish aristocrats are fighting with Ottoman governors in, in which these, in, and in these conflicts, often the central government tries to mediate because they're like, hey, you know, if you push these Kurds too far, they're not going to support us in the war against Iran. But obviously the Ottoman governors are trying to get as much money as they can in the short term to, you know, pay themselves and things like that. So you have this, uh, you have the system of aristocratic autonomy basically survives through these political transformations. Certain principalities become more prestigious. So, for example, the Baban dynasty 
really only becomes prestigious in the 18th century, whereas the Ayyubid dynasty in Hasankef, which had been one of the most prestigious, disappears. You know, we don't actually know what happened to it, but it disappears uh, entirely from the map. So there is some change in the political geography, but the overall political settlement, this kind of what I like to call ethnic feudalism, where the central government says there's a group of people here called the Kurds. They have their own aristocrats. We will we will rule. We'll put an Ottoman administrative veneer over it, but we'll leave them to do what they do in return for them protecting the borders against Iran. And Iran basically has a similar kind of system. They try to appoint people. You know, they try to appoint their own guys to positions, but they realize that's like politically counterproductive. So they get their own Kurdish. Uh, arist uh, aristocrats as well. So you have this system, and this system basically remains intact until the mid-19th century, although there are moves to abolish it from the early 19th century onwards. So this sort of feudal, ethnic feudalism that prevails in Kurdistan sort of lasts for three centuries. And to a certain degree, is perhaps, I, I, you know, is the context for an enormous amount of Kurdish cultural innovation because this system provided stability to a certain degree in the region, but also created mechanisms for the sponsorship of Kurdish cu culture. As I mentioned earlier, these Kurdish aristocrats sponsored Kurdish language poetry. So this is where we start to see Kurdish as a written language uh, as well during this uh, period. Uh, and again, during and this three century long period you're speaking about. Yeah, this three century long period. I, I mean, I've, uh, you know, uh, I'll be an arrogant academic, but I call it the Kurdish Renaissance because it, it is literally the period in which we first start seeing Kurdish, not as a language we hear about from other people, but for as a written language in which we have books and poetry. And this is, you know, this is not unique to the Kurds. There is a whole process of vernacularization taking place across Asia during this period. We think of vernacularization as a European phenomena, but there are parallels in the Middle East. So, for example, we see a shift away from uh, Persian in the Ottoman Empire as a high language towards Turkish. We see the Balkan languages being used more and more. We see, uh, and we see in India, where this paradigm was sort of first observed, a shift away from Sanskrit towards more vernacular languages as well. So we have these important cultural changes and the Kurds are kind of part of this broader cultural change. And there are material reasons for this in that we have these institutional mechanisms to support uh, Kurdish culture. So could you go a bit into the material reasons for that? And maybe we'll actually end on that on sort of um, proto-Kurdish nationalism. And sure. then we could go deeply into the development of actual Kurdish nationalism over the course of the 19th century. So what are the material reasons that begin to get what will be the cultural and uh, ideological and in some sense even identitarian sources of what will become Kurdish nationalism? Is it printing press? Is it stability? Is it institutions? Maybe you could just go through that because I think that'll also be a useful primer on this sort of like 17th, 18th century proto-nationalist moment, which is across the world, as you suggested, from, you know, England uh, and all the way to India. Yeah. So I guess the first level I would speak on is the administrative level. This form of ethnic feudalism had buy-in from the Ottoman elite who looked at the Kurdish aristocrats as a group and also Kurdish elites that began to see themselves in a group sense, not in a political sense. You know, there was no concept that they should have a unified Kurdish state or there should be a single Kurdish governor. But the notion that there is this 
community of rulers of Kurdistan. One of the first sort of uh, articulations of this is the Sharafnama. The Sharafnama is a history that is written in the late 16th century by a Kurdish aristocrat. A Kurdish aristocrat who had initially actually been brought up in the Persian uh, uh, palace, in the Safavid palace in Isfahan, but later defected to the Ottomans. There's a long history behind it, but he's a guy who lived between these two empires. And he writes a history of not only his family, the rulers of Bitlis, but all the other Kurdish rulers. He goes back, looks at the previous Kurdish dynasties, the Marwanids, the Ayyubids, and then talks about each of the Kurdish principalities that are existent uh, in his time as being part of this corporate identity. Interestingly, you know, one of the things he says is, you know, the Ottomans were wise because the Ottomans didn't try and impose one Kurdish ruler on us, but rather recognized us all as being, you know, good good rulers as well, which is very different from modern nationalism. But certainly amongst this feudal caste in Kurdish societies, there was a notion that they were part of a, 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 a Kurdish community, although the political implications of this are extremely different from modern nationalism. You know, I don't want to, people to confuse those two things. Uh, although this would have relevance later on because many of the pioneers of Kurdish nationalism they were the descendants of this old feudal elite who reinterpreted the Kurdish identity in a new historical era. What other sections of society viewed themselves as Kurdish? Well, the religious scholars. As I mentioned, Kurdistan was a center of Shafi'i learning. These religious schools became uh, uh, an important center of Kurdish identity. In fact, one of the greatest Kurdish poets, Ahmed Ikhani, uh, comes out of uh, a religious institution. And interestingly enough, his interpreta uh, interpretation of Kurdish identity is more radical than Sheriff Khan. Whereas Sheriff Khan, the writer of the Sheriff Nama, is saying, yeah, it's fine for Kurds to be vassals of imperial states, so long as they recognize us, so that they don't try and take our land, it's totally fine. Uh, Sheriff Khan, he basically writes a poem which resonates with Kurds today because he says, oh, Kurds are so divided, we're stuck between these empires. Obviously, modern Kurdish nationalists have a, a, a take on this, but what he was probably talking about was not so much having a nation state, but saying, why the hell are we subject to the Turks and the Persians? Why don't we create our own dynastic universal empire like the Ayyubids, where we're the top dog, right? But so this comes out of a different cast of society. And then of course you have tribal groups who identify as Kurd, Kurds, but more in the sense uh, as a way to distinguish themselves from peasantry. So that so there's a kind of, we're the Kurds, we're racially different from these subject, docile people who they literally call sheep, right? And do not recognize as being part of the same race. So Kurd, the Kurdish identity is mobilized in a number of different ways, depending on which element of society you're talking about. You have a kind of uh, status quoist uh, elite, you have a more radical religious intelligentsia, although obviously not all of them were radicals, but you have sort of more radical ideas coming out of the religious intelligentsia. And then we have Kurdishness as a social distinction. And again, the term Kurdistan is used in a variety of different ways during this period. Sometimes people will talk about it in a broad cultural sense, in the kind of way that we would understand today as this, this is the land where all the Kurds live. But often it would be used uh, to talk about a political place. So, for example, Bitlis, the city I mentioned, 
uh, in some sources, it's it's said to it's said to be in Armenia, but also be Kurdistan, in which which means that it was it's it's a Kurdish governed enclave. And sometimes the word Kurdistan is used in a plural to refer to districts that are not under the control of a centrally appointed official, but rather under a Kurdish aristocrat. And then finally, sometimes it's just used as an adjective. Uh, for example, the flat, the desert south of Diyarbakir is, uh, in one travelogue is called uh, Turkmenistan or Kurdistan, which means it's a place where there's lots of Turkmens and a lot of Kurds. So these terms, so, so there is a kind of Kurdish identity that is distinct from modern nationalism that functions in a different way. And obviously, the political implications of being part of the Kurdish community in the early modern period are completely different from the modern era and would make and the modern version of Kurdistan, Kurdish nationalism would make no sense to these people. But certainly there is there is a there, there is some kind of connection between these identities. Yeah, these proto proto-identities and proto-formations. Yeah. Uh, well, Gene, that was a lot. And I think that what we'll do, we'll have you on again and we'll talk about the modern uh, period, maybe even just probably get through the 19th century. And then we'll, perhaps we'll have to do another one on the post-World War I era. But uh, Gene, Mean Gene, Bajalon, thank you so much. Everyone check out uh, This Is Revolution pod. Uh, and thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure speaking with you all. Thank you.